Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 147 this morning, and also 150. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. From 145 to 150, we call the Ascent Songs. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praises beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcast of Israel. He heals up the brokenhearted and, and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. Now turn over one page to Psalm 150, the last of the Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the loop and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with sting instruments and flutes. And praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And um, that ends the, the Psalms. I'll just make a comment. You know, the very first song that we came out with, uh, they sort of turned Paul loose on the drums. And um, there are certain denominations that forbid musical instruments as part of the worship service. It's just um, considered music from the devil and it's not allowed in, in the church, so they sing everything a cappella. The only problem with that is it's not biblical because of what we just read. So if you thought Paul was getting a little carried away on the drums in the opening song we first came in, know that it says praise it with loud cymbals, loud clanging cymbals, and playing skillfully. I can't tell you how blessed we are at Calvary Appleton to have the people and the talent that's represented here because they really do love the Lord first. They just are able to do it uh, with um, um, the talents that God gave them. Uh, Some of them, half of them, uh, played professionally before they got saved and uh, the Lord just turned that around and now they use it to glorify him. The other thing I'll point out here is is the question about... um, uh, praising him with the uh, tambourine and the dance. And you're going, now oh, come on. Uh, can Christians dance? And, and um, you know, that's a debate that, that goes on, and the question always comes up can Christians dance? And, you know, there's a definitive answer that I, I say often about this question that is asked can Christians dance? And of course, the answer is well, some can, some can't. <laughs> now, Scott Johnson, <laughs> he, he can. No, no, his son can't. Scott, I got serious doubts about. You know. No. Um, just think of David. And he said he did it in his fruit of the looms when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He said he danced with such uh, enthusiasm that he embarrassed his wife, Michelle, that was watching from the window. And she said, oh, the king behaved so openly in front of all the women of Jerusalem today and she was disgusted. It it annoyed her, it upset her that David did that. I got busted years ago, I was listening, Dion just got saved and he he has a song called Uncloudy Day and and it moves, it's just a moving song and I was plugged in, I had my headphones in and I was doing something around the church but I got caught up in the song and I was 
you know. And uh, I didn't realize that there was somebody just standing behind me, just waiting for me to turn around as I was just uh, letting it loose, you know. And I thought I was all alone, but you never know. <laughs> I said, well, what could I say? It was Dion. It was uh, that song, Uncloudy Day, just, just moves. And it's a joyful song, and I just felt like dancing. And uh, I can dance for what it's worth, so just leave it at that. And the liberty to do so. <laughs> um, well, we're at a milestone. We're in the middle of the Bible. And we're finishing now um, the Psalms. And we'll be headed into the Proverbs. Um, the major theme, of course, of the Psalms is, is worship and praise. Uh, but the book is really five books. It's divided into five sections. And when you come to the end of one of the sections, it has what we call a doxology. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, James in the New Testament closes uh, with a doxology. Let him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless uh, before the Father. That's called a doxology. So when you're reading through the Psalms, there's five places where you have a doxology and you go into the next book. And all five of them together make up the 150 psalms that are here. Now, 57 of the psalms that are here were meant to be put to music uh, through the different instruments that we read about here in Psalm 150. 42 of them clearly are contemplative psalms. And unless I be misunderstood, I'm talking about meditating upon what you just read, not to be confused with Transcendental meditation. Whenever you read the word selah in a psalm, it means we're supposed to stop, pause, and actually think about what you just read. Contemplate, meditate on what's being said. And there's 42 of those. Five of them are, are prayers. Um, and then we have the uh, ascent 145 through 150. What you don't find in these ascent psalms is David... Um, going through a hard time, his soul is not downcast in any of these last five, just the opposite. It's very up-tempo, sort of builds to a crescendo until we get to the last six verses, 150, where it's nothing but rejoicing and to let everything and everybody and every instrument glorify the creator. There are other themes that we find in the Psalms. We have the theme of creation, the exodus out of Egypt, we have penitent songs or songs of repentance. We have songs of uh, pilgrimage. I'll put up on the screen 22 prophecies from the psalm that just deal with Jesus. And um, so the psalms are messianic and they're prophetic. These just happen to be about Jesus. There are many more that talk about the kingdom that's going to be established. They are, that's also in the psalms. Nine of the psalms are what we call acrostic psalms. An acrostic psalm will have um, uh, every letter beginning with Elf, A-L-E-P-H, first letter of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's written in an order where every verse starts with the, the next letter of the alphabet, 22 in all letters. And we have nine acrostic uh, songs. We have the longest chapter in the Bible, 
and the longest psalm, which would be Psalm 119. Now this one's very unique because in all but two of the verses in the Psalm 119, there's some reference to the Bible, God's word. Sometimes it's called statutes or precepts or his commandments or his word, all meaning the same thing. And it had to take a lot of skill to write every verse and have some reference to the Bible in Psalm 119, the longest. Well, Psalm 117 is the shortest. It only has two verses. And almost half, I would say 73, if I'm counting right, were written by David, who was Saul's musician. Five are written by Asaph. Asaph would have been the head of, uh, of uh, the, the worship team, so to speak, the service of music. We have 10 written by the sons of Korah. They were singers and composers. One by Moses, one by, by Hermon, one who was a wise man. One by Ethan, another wise man. One by Solomon, another wise man. The remaining 50 or so are anonymous, and we're not sure who penned them because no uh, record of who wrote them are there. Brings us to our text. Let's go back to Psalm 147 and look at the first verse. I've entitled the morning's message, Why We Worship. And so we read, praise the Lord, for he, for it is good. And to sing praises to our God, for it's pleasant, and praise is beautiful. There really is nothing more pleasant and beautiful. That was David's desire. Lord, one thing have I desired. That's what I'm going to seek after. Uh, But to, to sit in your house, sit at your feet, Behold the beauty of the Lord. And um, I'm grateful for Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights when we can just sort of check out our busy life, lifestyles and come in and, and just open up our heart. And all of a sudden, like the old song says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's just good. It's pleasant. It's beautiful. As we read here in verse 1, we are people that have been created to worship. And before we were Christians, we all worshiped something. I stuck my head in Lane's office this week and, and I said, uh, hey, LG, what, what was it that you worshiped before you met the Lord? He thought, he thought about it for all one second and said, fishing. <laughs> and... Um, I went around the prayer room in the back and I was asking everybody, okay, before you're saved, what was it? What, what, what did you worship? And um, a couple of them, like Dorian and Mary, you know, are brought up, in the, brought up in the church. And so I asked Mary what she worshiped and she was really a little Miss Catholic and she said, well, the Virgin Mary, of course. <laughs> and that's what she was serious about, about that. As for myself, you know, um, I spent every bit of my paper out money um, buying 45s. My dad's barber shop was next to the exclusive company in Oshkosh, next to the Caramel Crisp shop. So between the exclusive company and the Caramel Crisps, that's where all my money went as a kid. I was just into music, and I couldn't, I couldn't get enough. It was I'd put a stack on 45s and let them drop. And I, I worshipped music. I worshipped the Beatles, like most people. I worshiped cars, I worshiped motorcycles, I was in the sports. Um, when I saw Aspen, Colorado, 
and the, the ski hills and the ones compared out there to the ones in Wisconsin. Well, that was a no-brainer. So I moved to Aspen, and I just became a ski bum because I love skiing. Uh, and it's, it's got a double blessing because you're not a ski in six inches or a foot of powder on a regular basis, but just riding up the chairlift and looking at the incredible uh, beauty and just about four or five miles from the Maroon Bells, the most photographed mountains in, in the world. Just absolutely gorgeous. Independence Pass, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. So, um, you know, I worshipped. Johnny Denver was the big name in town. That's where he lived at the time. And um, the, I had my idols and their people and things that I worshipped uh, before, before I met the Lord. Um, you know, the saying in my generation, what people worshipped was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was the culture. And that was a culture that I grew up in. Other people more sophisticated um, have their jobs as their thing that they worship. That's what or who they identify with. Some of them have a lot of degrees and a lot of letters before their names, like Ph.D., I didn't know what that meant, but Pastor Chuck explained it to me one day. He says, it's piled high and deep. That's what PhD stands for. And I go, oh, that's what that stands for. No, I'm just kidding, and I apologize for any of you doctors out there that carry, carry them, and uh, you earn them. But uh, we can, before we're saved, because we are the way that God created us, we gravitate towards worshiping something or someone if not ourselves in particular. Um, Blaisel Pascal uh, published a book called Pensee, which is a defense of the Christian religion. It could be noted that his book was published after his death in 1662. Uh, but in that book, here's a quote that I'll read a paragraph and then I'll comment on it. And this is his observation of the human condition. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him Seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss, what a great way of saying it, an infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. And from what I just read has been coined the phrase inside of every human being, there's this God-shaped vacuum that we try to fill in. Well, this is where it comes from. It comes from Pascal's comments uh, here. And whether we admit it or not, everybody tries to fill that with something, and it can only be filled, um, and it was only meant to be filled by God himself. We were separated. We were perfect. We were in harmony with our creator until we sinned. And then the contact was broken, Adam evidently was used to hanging out with the Lord in the evening because the Lord would come to him in the cool of the night and they would talk and they would walk and there was harmony. And then they sinned and then they hid. And they discovered they were naked. They didn't know they were naked before. 
I think they were covered with light myself, but it's just my guess. The Bible doesn't tell us, except that when the Lord came for his regular walk, Adam was hiding in the bushes, and God had to call him out. Where are you, Adam? Adam, where are you? And so we had the separation, and we have the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, and the Lord sent an angel so that Adam and Eve couldn't get back in and eat of the tree of life. And so we'll have access to that tree again, by the way. It's mentioned in Genesis, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Look forward to that. But Jesus also reiterated the same thing about this emptiness and that he's the only one that can fill it. In John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Well, it's not a physical hunger he's talking about. It's a spiritual hunger. It's not a physical thirst he's talking about. It's a spiritual thirst. In John 7, he said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's not, you're not just going to be satisfied, but the Holy Spirit, he said, will actually overflow so that you actually are not only satisfied yourself, but now you can actually use what the Lord has given you to put and help other people and be concerned with somebody other than yourself. Somebody want to say amen to that? And that's what he does. He fills you up. And even said it would overflow with the idea of overflowing uh, and be a blessing into other people's lives. Praise simply becomes a natural byproduct of having an empty void fulfilled with God himself. We just become, we become thankful. So we read in verse one, it's good. It's good to sing praises toward God. It's pleasant and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing when a life is transformed by the Lord. Now, in verses uh, three down here, it says he heals up the brokenhearted and he, he brings back the outcast to Israel and he binds up their wounds. Look at uh, Psalm 145, verse seven and eight. It says that um, he has great goodness and we will sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and he's full of compassion. He's slow to anger and he's great in mercy. And verse nine, it says, his tender mercies are over all of his works. So why do we worship the Lord? Well, first of all, he is good and he is compassionate and he's tender. And uh, we, we went into detail in this on the Wednesday night study. I'm just gonna sort of skim it a little bit. But basically, what we're saying here is God is good. And... Uh, a rich guy came up to, or an attorney, I can't remember which, came up to Jesus one day and said, Thou good master. And he said, Why are you calling me good? There's none, none that's good except for God. Now it's interesting that he would be making that statement because he is God. And he was the only one that was good. But he was trying to get the other guy to, to gr- grasp it. In Acts 10, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what he did is he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And one of his greatest attributes and the reason we should worship him is that he is extremely compassionate 
He sees a need and he meets the need. So in Matthew 14 and 15, we have two times when the Lord looked at the crowds and was moved with compassion and he fed 5,000 people. And when he had, with a couple loaves and a couple fish, and when he fed the 5,000, it says it was a miracle, of course, uh, the multiplying of the food. And when the leftovers were picked up, there was 12 baskets left over. Now you go two chapters later, and what a lot of people don't realize is that there were two feedings of the thousands. In Matthew 15, we have the feeding of the four thousands, which is different than the other one. I'll read it. He called his disciples and he says, I have compassion on the multitudes because they've been with me for three days and nights. They haven't eaten anything and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So his heart went out to them because they were hungry and um, he had them sit down. But when you read this, this time there's only seven baskets left over when the 5,000, there was 12. Two different events that took place. He was in Jericho and the multitude was thronging him. And there was a couple of blind guys who heard that Jesus was going by. And they were saying, Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And it was irritating the crowd, and they said, quiet, shut up. But they cried out all the louder. And the Lord stopped, and he called these two guys out. And he said, Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. Can you imagine what it must be like never seeing, and then seeing for the first time when all you've known is darkness? I kind of think when we get to heaven, that's what it's going to be like. It's like never seeing before. And all of a sudden, wham, here's heaven. And it's like never seeing, and now you're really seeing. But the Lord had compassion. That's why we worshiped him. Um, He was moved with compassion um, with a man who had leprosy. You don't touch a leper. Leopard were commanded by law to declare their uncleanness from a distance. But we read that Jesus looked at this guy and had compassion on him in Mark 1. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched the leopard. And he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And he was instantly healed. And he said, okay, I want you to go show yourself to the priest now. Because even though it was incurable, God made provision in the Levitical law in the day of the cleansing of the leper. They had to go to the priest. The priest would put him in solitary for seven days. Uh, and after seven days, he'd check him out. If the leprosy was still gone, he would, the priest would pronounce him clean. That's why Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Then there was a time when a woman lost her only son, and it was a funeral procession. And when Jesus saw her in Luke 7, it said he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. And he came and he touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Can you imagine that? And he presented him to his mother. And fear came on upon all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Why do we worship the Lord? Because he's good, 
because he's compassionate and because he is, that's his nature. And if he lives in us, then it begs the question, shouldn't we be likewise? Somebody want to say amen to that? And actually, Paul commands us to in Galatians 6, 9. He says, I don't want you guys to grow weary in doing good. For in due season you will reap if you don't lose heart. The Lord's keeping track of your good works. Matter of fact, he says, when you do them, be careful how you do them. Because you don't want to let your right hand knowing what your left hand is doing because your heavenly father who sees in secret, he's watching. Someday he'll reward you openly. And then as far as compassion goes, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, finally be of one mind, having compassion on one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. So instead of ragging on one another, we're told to love on one another and be compassionate on one another. Amen to that? Amen to that. Well, this last week, I'll tell you a story, and um, I'll explain the reason I'm telling this story in just a bit. I was going to the Y. I'm a Y guy. And I was going in the uh, entrance across from the parking lot, and they got a ramp there for wheelchairs to get in. And there was this gal, and she was turning her wheelchair backwards because she was going to pull herself up that way. And I said, hey, you want to push up? And she said, sure. And I said, I charge. I charge by the minute. And uh, she just laughed. And, and um, I took her in, and she swiped her Y card. She said, thanks a lot. And I said, no problem. I'll take you to the elevator. So she says, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, no, I want to. So we went and went all the way down to the elevator. And um, told her I would see her later, and she went about doing her workout. Now, just so that we understand this correctly, I told you a story about a good deed. And uh, the fact of the matter is, the Lord told me, go do that. My nature is forget about it. She doesn't she make, her way, make her own way up there. That's my natural nature. And I don't want to be misunderstood here because this is what I know about me that in me there is nothing good that dwells. Isn't that what Paul said? For I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. For if it is present, the will to do is, is in me, but how to perform it, I don't do it, nor can I find it. I know I should be doing good things, but I don't. So that brings us to the term praise the Lord. Let's say somebody thanks you for something good that you've done, or maybe it's a gift that you have. Doesn't the Bible tell us that every good and perfect gift comes from upstairs and that we should give glory where the glory should go? That's why we say praise the Lord. Now you can be gracious if you do something nice and and, uh, and you can say thank you and graciously accept that, but in the back of your head you better be going, Lord, basically I know who I am and I know who the Lord is, and if something good is coming out, then it's only because of Jesus, and he's the only one that should get the glory. Amen? That's why we worship. We worship because we understand who we are. We understand what we deserve. And instead of giving us what he deserves, he gives us his grace, and he gives us his mercy. He took, as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin 
became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. And that's what he did for me. And, and what that should create is this attitude of gratefulness and it should be just a natural, spontaneous thing to want to enter into worshiping the Lord. All right, let's go back to Psalm 147. I want to read verse four. This is a mind blower. He counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Are you kidding me? God of Wonders, we watched it the other night and it said that our universe is 28 billion light years across. Billions of galaxies with billions of stars in each of those galaxies. Unbelievable, boggles the mind. And yet, he is a creator and there's not a thing at your fingertip that he did not make. Um, yeah, that's why he's worthy because he can create something that awesome and that beautiful. And what's interesting, what it says here, in the creation account in Genesis 1, this is what it says. It's almost like an afterthought about the stars. Verse 16, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then these five words, oh yeah, he made the stars also. That's all it said. It's like a five-word sentence. Oh, by the way, that universe and the, the, the star wheel that's out there and the wonder and awe of it and how it's expanding, just like the Bible said, he stretches out the heavens. Our universe is expanding exactly like the Bible said it would. Now, if you haven't watched God of Wonders lately, do it because you're just gonna get blessed. Um, And I also wanna pause at this time, and I wanna plug the creation conference that we're having here on the 27th of this month with Jay Seeger and Rick Oliver from Arizona. Um, I want you guys to, to set aside that Saturday and actually think about bringing somebody that maybe isn't saved or maybe is a Christian but believes in evolution and um, invite them and say, we, I want to challenge you. I challenged one of my Y buddies just this last week. He said he was into evolution. And I said, well, we could have a good debate about it. He says, okay. I said, but before we debate, I got to give you something so you know where I'm coming from. So I went out to the car and I got him a God of Wonders. And I said, next time we talk, we'll have something to talk about. And um, uh, some of us won't be here. About 40 of us are going to be with Russ Miller and um, I don't want to rub it in too bad, but we get to do the Grand Canyon river raft for a week and end up in Bryce, and Russ is going to teach creation from just using the Grand Canyon. And, um, of course, the majority of people in our nation believe that's millions of years of, of uh, evolution and the wearing away by the Colorado, and uh, he's, he's going to explain the foolishness of that. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you have been to, seen the Grand Canyon? Can you describe it without not being there? Not really. You got something you gotta see. And uh, I've always wanted a bucket list uh, to take a raft and actually raft down um, uh, the, the Grand Canyon. It is an unbelievable sight. But it was formed by Noah's flood and the sediments were laid down very, very quickly. And how can you explain fossil shells on the top of the highest mountain Everest in the world? 
Yeah, they have fossils on top of Mount Everest. Well, how did they get there? Simple creation account. God elevated the mountains, and he lowered some of the canyons. And um, take advantage of, mark it off. I know it's summertime and we'd like to get away, but are we not living in the last days? Somebody want to say amen to that? How, how How many more opportunities? The Bible says, come let us reason together, saying the Lord. If you would sit down and have a reasonable debate with somebody who is an evolutionist and you know your stuff, you're gonna, they're going to be treading water real quick because they don't have any facts. We deal with facts that are there. And um, anyway, I can't get too sidetracked, but take advantage of it. Our creator created the stars also, and um, that's another reason that we worship him. But more importantly, he created you, and he created me. David said, you are so important to him, he doesn't not ever stop thinking about you. David said, your thoughts towards me, Lord, if I'd count them, they're more than the sands of the sea. I take that literally. Well, how could that be? Well, you see, he's been around forever. He has always been. Psalm 139 says, he knew you before you were formed. What does that mean? That he was thinking about you in eternity. So that it's possible to say that his thoughts towards you are as many as the number of the sea. And now all of a sudden, now you're living between those dashes. The year you were born, the year you die, and the in-between stuff. And he wants to have fellowship with you. Um, He made you the object of his love. Like Pastor Lane said before communion this morning, God really does love you guys. We don't like to, it's hard for us to hear that because we know just how unlovable we can really be. But he knows us. I don't think there's anything better in this life than to be the object of someone's love. Just think about that. That somebody really loves you and you're the object of that love. Is there anything better than that? I'm a Bruce Coburn fan because he's such a great writer. And in one of his songs, he's got a, he's got a quote that says, to be held in the heart of a friend is to live like a king. That somebody actually thinks about you and, uh, and you're in their heart. That's, that's, that's living like a king. Now having said all that, um, the planet that God created is not perfect. And it's groaning. And his creation, you and I, even though we've been born again, we're still not perfect either. Somebody want to say amen to that? Now we need to see where this is headed. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1 in the New Testament. Romans 1. As far as the creation goes, we read in verse 18 that there's a group of people who knows that there is a creator. But it says in verse 18, they suppress this truth and unrighteousness. You can present them with the truth, but they suppress it. They deny it. I like that Paul Simon lyric. Man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Don't bother me with the facts. And you can prove it. So they know it's true, but they suppress it. Why? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. Well, how has God showed it to them? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuses. There won't be any good excuses on judgment day for the lost. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, we worship him, nor were they thankful, we're thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was dark and they professed to be wise, but they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The prophet said, you guys, what is this? You make your gods? You give them eyes, you give them ears, you give them legs? They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. This is your God? And, you know, it's showing the foolishness of idol worship. Let's turn over to chapter 8. Even though the earth is going to be redeemed, at this time, the curse remains upon it. Even though you and I have been born again, we still live in sinful bodies. So Paul writes about this in Romans 8. Let's pick it up in verse 18, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time, and we do, there's tough days, Now, it's not worthy, though, to be compared with the glory which shall be, future tense, revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, okay, God's creation, his world, notice, it eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. You're telling me creation is waiting for something? Yeah. It's waiting for the adoption. 20, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. When is that day coming? Well, there's a day coming when the lion's gonna lay down with the lamb. And uh, they'll no longer be carnivorous. They'll be vegetarians. The instinct to uh, stalk and kill will be gone. The curse that is on this earth will be no more. And um, the Garden of Eden will be restored. Reminds me of the old old Woodstock song. We're just trying to get back to the garden. That's in our hearts. Um, But they had no idea what they're saying because that's the reality. The garden's coming back for a thousand years on this planet. And we're going to rule and reign. But that hasn't happened yet. So verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together till now. And not only they, not only the creation, the earth, but we also, the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting. I hope you guys are. I am. I get caught up in the world way too easy. But in my heart of hearts, you know, I really want a new body. Oh, in the worst way. And uh, the good news is you're going to get one, and we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, what? The redemption of our body. The old one goes away. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about a body that God made for this world, but he's also got a body he made for the world to come. And boy, I'm looking forward to that one. For we're saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For what does one still hope for what, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly await for it with perseverance. In other words, we hang in there. Yes, it's tough, but I'm not gonna give up. 
And I'm not going to quit following the Lord. I'm not going to quit teaching the Bible. I'm not going to quit witnessing the people. I'm going to keep doing that until the the Lord comes. And um, knowing that, I just read Romans 8. We're going to get a new world. No curse. Going to get a new body. i sure looking forward to that. This is why... um, Let's just go back. I want to read one verse. The Lord is going to do all this for us. And Paul in Romans 8 explains that now we have God's spirit living in us, but now we have verse 12. I just want to point out one word. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We got a debt to pay. But how, not being a good person, how can I pay a debt to the Lord? I owe him everything. What can I do? That's what the disciples asked Jesus in John 6. They said, Lord, what can we do to do the works of God? And this is what he told them. I want you to believe on him who the Father has sent. That's it? That's what you want me to believe? That's what I want you to believe. And I'm going to live in you, and you're going to live your everyday life, and I'm going to work in you, and you're going to become more like me, and I'm going to use you along the way when I feel like it. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wants to, And we're told to exercise those gifts. But this debt, what can I do for the Lord? I'm not a good person, so what does he require of me? Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 for the answer. Hebrews 13, looking at verse 15. I like the verse before it, talking about the kingdom that's coming For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one that's to come. This isn't home, gang. This is not home. Therefore, because this other home is coming, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In other words, what he's asking for is uh, to worship him, and offer to him the only thing that we can do is say thank you. And then he says, don't forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifice God is well pleased. And so, how can I pay my debt? I can, I can worship him. How do I do that? That's what the woman at the well wanted to know. Where and how? Uh, you, you Jews say it's in Jerusalem in the temple, but us Samaritans say it's Mount Gerizim. Which one is it? And Jesus corrected her, says the time is coming and now is. Not only not in Jerusalem or Samaria, but the Father is seeking such to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the Lord is actually looking for people to worship him. One time there was 10 lepers and they came and the Lord healed every single one of them as they were walking away. And one guy's walking away, he's checking himself out and he goes, I'm healed. And all of a sudden, his heart was touched, and he says, I'm going to go say thank you. And he goes back to the Lord and worships, and the Lord's question to the guy is, where's the other nine? I healed all of them. Only this one guy came back. You see, all of us have been saved, but not all people are are worshipers. The Lord is actually desiring um, and looking for people just to really open themselves up and say, Lord, just thank you for what you've done for me. Saved a, like um, John Newton says, saved a wretch like me. 
And then he says, I want to take it a step further. You can do this. Um, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a new commandment I'm going to give you, I want you to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. So love one another. You know that our God is love? Just think about that for a second. We have three descriptions. God is spirit, God is light, but then it says God is love. And man, that hit me one day like I couldn't, I was doing something, but it was like a revelation of that is who God is. It's what he is. He is love. Ah, And then to think that he has a face, Revelation 22.4, and they shall see his face. Guys, you're going to look into the face of love someday. Now, what, what does that look like? And doesn't that make your mind wonder? No wonder Paul couldn't comment or say anything when he was taken to heaven. He says, I, I heard things I can't. Not lawful for man to, to talk about what I heard. Not what he saw, but what he heard. Interesting. All right, the truth is, we don't worship him or love him as much as we should. All right, say amen to that. We don't be honest. We're sort of like the young guy who is in love and he's writing this love letter. He's waxing eloquent to this gal. Very poetic. He said, oh, I'd climb the highest mountain for you. I'd swim the widest river for you. I'd crawl across burning sand in the desert for you. And he says, and if it doesn't rain Wednesday night, I'll come over and see you. Yeah, that's really a dedication there, buddy. Really in love, just uh, a little rain shower is going to keep all that love from being manifested. In closing, um, I want to turn to a time when we're going to be, we're out of tune right now, and when we're going to come in harmony with our brothers and sisters, and we're all going to have a hootenanny like never one before. And it's a new song. It's in Revelation chapter 5. So turn there as we get to wind this thing up this morning. Of course, in the book of Revelation by John, he's on the island of Patmos, the year is 96 AD. He's told to write seven letters to seven churches. Jesus has appeared to him in his glorified body. Jesus' voice is like the sound of many waters. And he's glowing. And... Um, After the seven letters, I want you to notice that they're all in red letters. And one of the promises here to the churches is that they will sit with him in verse 21. And I will, on his throne, as I have overcame and sat down on my father's throne, so will the church. Another place, one of the promises is that they would make him uh, kings and priests and they would rule with him. And so by the time you get to uh, chapter 4, notice that there's no more red letters, but it turns black. Because the book of Revelation is primarily for the Jewish people. The end of the church age has come, I believe, after chapter 3. Romans teaches this. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. It implies a set number of people that will be saved during the church age, and then the rapture will take place. I see the rapture in chapter four, verse one. 
The Greek word for after these things, metatonta, is after the things of the church. John hears a trumpet, interesting, trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 about the rapture. Come up here and I will show you the things that must, must take place after this. Well, what's gonna take place after the church age? Well, it's called the seven-year tribulation period or the great tribulation. But before it begins in chapter six, just look at that, verse one, when the first seal is opened, the Antichrist appears. So what's the order? Church age, rapture, and then in chapter five, John is in heaven. He sees the throne. He sees 24 thrones around the throne. And then he sees these four cherubim. They're called Zoa. And they're incredible beasts. If you want more detail, go to Ezekiel 10, and you'll get much more detail about these four creatures, these beings. But in verse 8, it says, each of them had six wings. They were full of eyes, round within. And they did not rest day or night, but they said, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I'm wondering if Paul wasn't taken to heaven, he saw these four creatures, and all they were doing was holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, over and over and over. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, the 24 elders would fall and worship him who lives forever and ever, and said, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. For by your will, they exist and they were created. And after this, John sees the Father sitting on the throne. And he's got a scroll in his hand. And um, nobody was worthy to open the scroll and uh, even look at this thing. And that John couldn't handle it because he knew what the scroll was. And um, he begins to weep to think that this world would forever remain unredeemed. It's a title deed to this planet that was forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And uh, one who became the heir and owner was one Lucifer. And um, Jesus did not deny that claim when the devil offered it to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was being tempted. See all these kingdoms? They're yours. All you have to do is get down and bow to me. It was given to me, I can do with them what I want to. And if you'll get down and worship me, I'll give them to you. The Lord rebuked him, said, get behind me, Satan. And rightly so. The Lord knew that this day was coming and he would pay the price for the redemption of planet Earth. So we read in verse five, this is what the angel said to John. John, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the root of David, has prevailed to open a scroll and to loose its seals. And John looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we're going to see this, gang. We're going to see this happen. And when he had taken the scroll, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down uh, before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, and notice uh, who's in the chorus here. 
The song goes like this. Here's the words. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. We can only be human beings who are sinners who are now saved. Where? Out of every tribe, every tongue, and people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That was the promises made in Revelation 2 and 3. So now we have this new song. We know the words already. We'll learn the tune someday. But what I want to point out here is the number of people that are going to be involved. It's really something when you can get, uh, I've been in Billy Graham crusades, and it's something to hear uh, 80,000 people singing just as I am, or how great thou art. 80,000 people. Imagine in the millions of people singing this song at the same time. And to round it out and even make it more dramatic, all of a sudden the angels kick in. And uh, how many angels are there? Well, they're, they're 10,000 times 10,000s times 10,000s. An unnumbered 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, so now we have creation piping in, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever and ever. Why do we worship? We're finishing the Psalms this morning, so let's go back. Psalm 150. Now you know why we say praise the Lord. So in closing... As we reach this milestone, as we make our way through the Bible, God's word, Psalm 150, we'll read it in close. Praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet, with the loop and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's read it together. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the book of Psalms. But more importantly, what this book reveals to us, Lord, about your character and your nature. Lord, that you're good that you bind up the brokenhearted. And I pray for any that might be brokenhearted this morning, Lord. And um, just pray that you'd heal them up. Thank you that you are compassionate and you showed mercy on us. But mostly, Lord, we're grateful that you've caused us to be the object of your love. This is beyond what we can think or imagine. 
And really all you're asking us in return is to offer to you the sacrifice of praise. And that is simply the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to you. Lord, we're just grateful. We know we can't do anything or receive any credit because all good things come from you. But we say thank you this morning and praise the Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.